Greetings and welcome to Inside the Master's Studio, a behind-the-screens look into the art of GMing. Today we're joined by Dan. Hello. I'd like to start from the very beginning. How did you first get involved with tabletop RPGs? Uh, it was uh, toward the end of high school and I was just about to join the military. And I found out that our oldest brother had uh, had been playing D&D a few different editions that whole time I was in high school. And I felt kind of cheated, so I wanted to join a, uh, a D&D 3.5 game. And uh, that was my first experience actually playing any of it. Do you remember your first character? Oh, yeah. He was uh, a bard named Miguel. And he, I, uh, I really love using PDFs. So I found a, a, like a form-fillable character sheet. And I found the most outrageous image of like Antonio Banderas modeling in underwear, and that was my uh, my character. I tried to do the accent, but it wasn't very good. Do you remember what happened to that character? Uh, I got to play a few different uh, sessions or encounters with them. It involved, you know, somehow defeating some like sea raiders that were attacking a town, and. Getting to, you know, wear full plate, which I'm not even sure in hindsight how that worked out 3.5 wise. But no, I, I just tried a few different uh, games with them and then I moved and I'm sure they moved on. After that game, when was your next chance to play? Uh, I think the next chance I had after that was probably uh, coming home on leave and playing some 4th edition encounters or, you know, the, the odd... Uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle themed fourth edition game uh, at the the local game store, and and those were pretty fun. I had a pretty decent DM. Yeah, that was my next, my second try at it. And fourth edition wasn't that bad. It was just new. Of all the editions you've played, do you have a favorite? Well, D and D wise, I've played uh, three point five Pathfinder, which I know it's not D and D. And fourth edition and fifth, and I really do like fifth the most. Uh, it's it's pretty simple, even though you know as a DM I've had to look up how other people you know made up rules that didn't already exist or weren't written down yet. But it's it's pretty popular right now, and it seems a little more accessible. Uh, there's a little less crunch, so I'm enjoying that a lot. As a DM, do you prefer to look up other people's interpretations? Versus just coming up with your own? Uh, I'm not always as good at, at uh, on-the-spot decisions. So, like, my first time DMing was just doing Lost Minds of Fandelver, the starter set. So I had to look up, you know, all the things that people already ran into. Um, and even though I forgot most of the lessons that they learned, I at least had, you know, something to start from. Because this is my first time DMing. I wasn't really sure what I could get away with. Can you remember a particular bit of knowledge from other dms that you held on to for that first session no not for the first session i i did not hold on to much at all i i made a lot of what i now know as uh, like classic mistakes like uh owing more loyalty to the publication to the adventure than to the players and letting them do their own uh their own thing uh within reason of course but you know, I figured if it wasn't in the book, then it wasn't going to happen. So uh, <laughs> all the all the lessons I really learned were after that. But it took DMing that first time to actually really seal it in. 
What kind of mix did you have for your first adventuring party in terms of experience with D&D? Well, we had um, one player that actually, um, they, they're all co-workers, but one good friend of mine that uh, had a lot of experience with 3.5 and uh, some Pathfinder, but not, not too much. And uh, he, he kind of helped uh, carry the rest of the group when either I was talking to someone else or... Uh, or he knew, you know, instinctively the answer, and I didn't. So he he was still a player, but he's always, you know, kind of backed me up because uh, it was we had about six six to seven people, you know, five to seven people, and uh, for first time DM and everyone else being brand new to the game, uh, that was not a great setup. Did you have any moments where it felt like he was trying to take over the game? No, no, I've been pretty fortunate in my uh in my parties and uh especially dming uh it was all just out of you know hey this is what you know the rule i've seen or you know this is kind of uh what i would do but you know it's up to the dm and you would always defer back to me so there was we never had any uh power struggles or anything like that that some people run into did you take the prison approach and kill one of the players characters just to show that you could <laughs> uh no no they got really close they kept trying to die um i didn't i didn't kill any characters on purpose but uh you know level one level two characters are are pretty frail i don't think any died permanently they just got into death saves and um i i got to enjoy the few rolls and turns and initiative where i didn't have much to do because they're making death saves and i could watch the rest of their party like seeing if they were going to die or not so they could take their items so that was pretty fun they weren't always the best teammates but it was entertaining for me at least at that point i've heard a lot of dungeon masters talk about how level one and two the characters are especially squishy would you start at level three for all your ongoing adventures or do you think it's important to go through the first two levels I think level three is a pretty good starting point. I'm I'm planning um, another kind of one shot uh, introduction adventure for some other people, and I, I like to start it at level three because even if people want to like two players want to play the same rogue, they probably don't want to play the same type of rogue, and so level three with fifth edition with those archetypes, I think you can get a little bit more out of the system that way. It's a little more to explain. But at level three, it's not that much more, I don't think. So after that first session, what did you take away from that? Really, it was getting through the whole adventure. That it, for me, it was it was very uh, adversarial, and it was a struggle each time. And I'd come away from each game just thinking that I had completely failed, and you know, I'd forget things even though I had the book in front of me because I didn't want to spend the time to. Uh, work on it or be like hey hold up give me five minutes so i was pretty tired after each game um but people kept saying they had a good time so they're convincing liars or it wasn't that bad and how would you prepare for the next session uh, i would read through the uh just read through the starter set i hadn't really gotten much of an idea for oh hey you know i've, I've got a warlock and a paladin they're probably going to use these abilities and that's how they they could overcome this fight I was mostly just trying to prepare what uh, I'd be saying for the NPCs and characters and stuff like that. 
How long did it take you before you were comfortable going away from the book? I honestly, I wasn't really comfortable going away from the book until the very last uh, encounter where we ended it with a uh, a healthy serving of the deck of many things. Because uh, up to that point, I didn't really realize that I could uh, do things differently, even though that's the, you know, most most of the time that's why people come to D&D or other pen and paper role-playing games is for the options and the choices. So what happened as a result of the deck of fuck this adventure? <laughs> well, I, and it was the end of the adventure, so I didn't care. Um, what what happened is we had about five players and they 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 were really intent on fucking themselves over or each other over rather um so they concocted like a lottery system to where we, they were going to pull every card from that deck which is just the worst idea and um you know each player could pull however many cards and then the next person down the line would have to just pull some amount and uh, they could either just pull one and really screw the last player or pull a bunch to get the good stuff. And odds are, you know, the last player would get really screwed over. And so a lot of things happened, you know, people became bows and got sent to hell and the warlock became, you know, an enemy of his patron. And um, (laughs) our, our druid got to, uh, I think, intelligence three or something like that but he also got a castle so and level nine it was very confusing at the end of the day our paladin who just wanted cool magical stuff the whole time had nothing (laughs) and no money and he was destitute and our rogue was uh in a different plane and our druid was of use to nobody because he's just a dumb bear with a castle it's pretty worthwhile and that that took some time as well because a player would get like the uh I can't remember which card it is, but to time travel or to reset everything that just happened, they would do that and then they'd go over it again. So I think it was about three times of actually going through the deck and trying to screw each other over that wound up with that result. So after the big finale, did you have plans for another group? Not really another uh group. Specifically, I I had a few uh, one-shots that I've made here and there, and uh, I got some of those players to actually start their own. And the good friend of mine that was actually kind of helping with rules and stuff like that has done his own one-shots and done a really good job of that because he also does the, the terrain crafting piece and uh, does very good work with that. So while I might you know focus on a grid, like a Chessex, uh, like a vinyl grid, he'll have a whole like diorama that you're just playing in and it's beautiful. So I'm a little jealous of that, but not of the time it takes to make it. Do you prefer one shots to extended campaigns? Uh, I, I do for myself, uh, just because I can, you know, see a new mechanic or a new, uh, monster or something and say, yeah, I want to try that out. And, uh, so I'll make a, a one shot that might last a few hours or be a few, you know, a dungeon or something like that. Uh, just maybe, four or five encounters uh, and that usually takes a long time between bickering and figuring out rules and stuff like that i i enjoy it it's easier for me because at the end of the day when i feel like i've done a horrible job dming it's just one time and i can kind of relax and take a month or two before i think of anything else 
so I don't feel like my creative juices are on the spot and have to constantly flow. Mentioning the Chessex grid, do you prefer being able to represent everything exactly as intended versus theater of the mind? Uh, I think I might move more toward theater of the mind just because it takes uh, less time, even though it's it's more difficult to describe things. What I like about the grid is that um, I could put everything on it, and it, when they once they enter a room, it's up to them. They know exactly what they can explore. It's like, okay, there's a chest here. There's a chair there. What's under the chair? Um, they they know what's going on and how they can use that area to their advantage. So it's uh, it's almost less questions for me if it's on the grid, and uh, a lot of my players like the uh, more tactical simulation combat part of it. Even I mean, even though there are fireballs and dragons and stuff like that, a lot of it is. Uh, you know, solving the puzzle of how you're going to use the battle space to win the day. So that's part why I like it and part why my characters or players like it. So a little bit of both. The players prefer the game aspect of RPG as opposed to role play. Absolutely. Mine do at least. I know a lot of people are, are less into that, but that's what I'm working with. And that's what I'm growing up in as a DM. When you're preparing for a one-shot, do you get a group together first, or do you get the idea for the one-shot first? A uh, little bit of both. Um, I I have a rough idea usually of who's going to be in it, and based on who is in it and what they like, I'll craft the one-shot. I mean, craft is kind of a strong word compared to some of the quality I put out. Um, like, if I know that... Uh, you know, a character has or a player hasn't played before and uh, really wants to, you know, be a, like a Conan esque barbarian. Well, I'm going to make sure he has opportunities to, you know, rip things to shreds. But if I also want to do a weird experimental thing where the uh, the puzzle is actually just listening to an MIDI file of a Dolly Parton song, well, you know, it, we both get our uh, get our kicks out of that. So I, I like to craft it to the players because then I can watch their faces when they actually see something they like or enjoy or have mentioned maybe months ago that I wrote down and they get to confront that. Now let's go back to that MIDI file of Dolly Parton. Okay. So, um, it was, uh, Jolene and this one shot, the whole concept is that, uh, the players kind of show up to this weird, almost abandoned kind of secret um, like duchy in the middle of nowhere where there's a large central tower in a small village and some caves off to the west. And uh, basically Jolene is like this, uh, this fae that has taken over the town and, you know, killed the Duke and the, uh, the, the barred wife of the Duke or something like that. So you go to these crypts and you fight the, uh, the ghoul of this bard wife. And, you know, if you, if you read the, the words Jolene, there, the, you know, the name Jolene somewhere in her like haunted study, then that starts a MIDI file and you have to figure out what the heck's going on. So I, I, I spend most of the time trying to figure out how to, uh, combine the story with the, uh, really just rolling dice and killing stuff. So you get a little bit of both. Were the players able to decipher that puzzle easily? Fairly easily, yeah. I mean, I I know that if there's one way to solve an issue, 
but people can't figure it out, then that's no good. So I, in the study, I had a few different things like, you know, you could find this instrument and it starts playing this tune or, you know, there, there are some runes on the wall. And if you make this roll, then you can decipher this much of the uh, Elder Fruthark runic alphabet. So there are different ways to go at it. And for people who like puzzles, you at least have options. Do you try to come up with a set number of solutions or do you just think of the most plausible? Um, I, I try to come up with at least maybe three ways to get through something. And I know that they'll probably come up with a fourth and fifth, even more insane way. So as long as there are three ways that I can figure out, I know that, you know, when their, their juices are flowing, uh, they'll be able to, you know, solve it. I don't do anything particularly crazy or, uh, intense. Do you ever accept the fourth and fifth options on the fly? Oh yeah. Um, if it makes sense, uh, it, it'll work. Um, I've gotten a lot better about improvising and especially if somebody does the work for me of solving an issue, then yeah, that'll, that'll probably work. <laughs> Can you think of a particular instance of that happening? I can't remember exactly. Uh, there was a, a magical door. It's something I stole from uh, Reddit. Uh, and I guess it's kind of a classic. The magical door where you're supposed to knock instead of, you know, try to break the door down or open it or something like that. And you'll get pushed. I think they burnt part of the room down or blew a hole in the stone wall. I can't remember which. So they bypassed that a little bit. And have there been any times where you... Put your foot down? Uh, only if, like, uh, the spell or something they're using would not work in that way. Um, but, you know, thinking about it, I don't want to fight too much over how, you know, logic works in a fantasy world. So it depends. If it's something absolutely ridiculous that I can't imagine working, especially when it comes to interacting with NPCs, like, oh, I say this, like, okay, well... He would, you know, he'd get mad at that. So are you sure you want to say that? Like, yes. Okay. He starts to attack you, you know, roll initiative. So I think it's, it's good to have many ways to solve something and let them solve it. But at the same time, some things probably aren't going to work. Do you have a certain source of inspiration for the one shots you come up with? I usually get a, a random idea and uh, I think that that might be neat. Or, you know, I, I browse uh, forums or, you know, subreddits and I'm like, yeah, I wonder how I could make that interesting for, for my guys or my group or, you know, what do I like about this concept? Okay, I like that. And a lot of it really does depend on the player. Like the next one shot I plan on running is going to be more like uh, 1880s London. And it's going to have, you know, serial killers and weird stuff going on in there and that's not even a setting i'm i have any experience with so i'm gonna have to actually do some research but it'll probably write itself after watching a few episodes of sherlock are you planning on including technology or will it still be a fantasy setting uh i think it'll be a very low low magic low fantasy um so no like cockney orcs even though that sounds awesome um uh, there'll just be elements of it. I think it's it'll probably take more the angle of like a Lovecraftian, you know, the more you know, the less sane you are, kind of thing. So it's it's definitely going to be weird and out of my comfort zone, but I think it'll be worth it. 
aside from bringing in MIDI puzzle pieces, do you have anything else that you do to increase the ambiance of the game? Uh, actually, now that you mention it, um, that whole game, uh, I had uh, Pandora playing on my computer, and I made a station that was all like eight bit uh, fight music and other other stuff. So some of it was, you know, from games in the '90s, uh, but a lot a lot of it was just kind of uh, thematically appropriate eight bit music. So it felt like. You know, maybe you're playing Chrono Trigger or Final Fantasy or something like that on the NES, except you're rolling dice with your friends. I thought that was kind of fun. If funds weren't an issue, what is one thing you would like to have at your gaming table to bring players into the game more? Hmm. Well, I really like uh, the terrain that a lot of people use and like MDF buildings and stuff like that. And I've got one and I still haven't put it together, but they're just so dang expensive. And the time it takes to uh, paint them and put them together and glue. I mean, arguably I, I have the time. I just spend it on other things, but I think that would be it. I've got a, a small projector. I just haven't used it yet, but that I don't have any plans to make it uh, like mounted on the ceiling to make a cool gaming grid, but maybe I will. I mean, roll 20 is probably good for that. Put it under the table and have it back project. I mean, that'd be cool too. I mean, uh, I mean, a glass table. Yeah, I would do that in a heartbeat. It's just a matter of, uh, you know, figuring out how to do it. Now, do I need to make a new table? I don't. How, how am I going to make a new table? You know, it's once you try to start doing that cool Gucci stuff, it just opens up a can of worms. Where you know, if I don't already have the carpentry skills, I, I don't know how I'm going to do it. But you know what? I know enough people. I I can use my network, and I could probably yeah, I can bribe enough people that I could probably have a cool projector gaming table. That's not a bad idea. Did you just say Gucci? Yeah, I said Gucci. Is that is that not common parlance these days? Well, we'll see you next week, folks. <laughs> oh. Do you have a favorite group of characters that you've planned for? Yeah, actually, the, that one shot with Dolly Parton was, was one of my favorites to plan for, just because uh, I I knew that they'd roll with whatever, so I would think of different ways to either get them attached mechanically through the game or even emotionally in the rare time that, you know, the, the barbarian, it turns out his totem is the bear and that's what he believes in. And then he watches a, uh, an arena pit bear get mauled by a lion. You know, there's different stuff like that to really stick it to the players is a lot of fun. Cause the whole time they're just harassing me. So it's, it's, it's still a little bit of a uh, bickering and fighting, but it's, it's pretty fun. If you had to give Dolly Parton a class in Dungeons and Dragons, aside from Bard, what oh. would it be? Aside from Bard, oh, I can't give you the open net. Yeah, I mean that's. I really wanted to alley-oop. If she were not a Bard, I think she would either be a. Hmm, I'd say cleric, or uh. I mean, it sounds bad, even Warlock, but no, I'd, I'd probably say Cleric. She does a lot of good support stuff. I still get her books from her uh, foundation for the boys. So, you know, uh, even if Bard doesn't work, Cleric, Cleric's pretty good. It's okay if you like the books, too. You don't have to say they're for the boys. 
okay. I, I do like the books. Most of them. If I get, you know, uh, doubles or repeats, that's not as exciting, but some of them are really good. As part of preparing to move to a new base, do you scout ahead to see what the landscape is like for Dungeons and Dragons? Oh, done been scouted. Yeah. Um, I already know which game stores uh, I'm going to be going to, and I already have a few people down there that I know are willing to play D&D or, and even run it. So I, I've i already got most of the uh, pieces to the puzzle set up. Um, most most of that is X-Wing players, so that's unfortunate, but there's still enough D&D players I know down there that uh, I'm not going to be running out of uh, games or things to do. Do you do anything online to see how they react, to see if you want to play with them? Uh, no, most of the people are, you know, guys I know that I've been stationed with before or uh, have gone through some training with. So it's mostly people I already know. Um, I've, I've done random encounters in uh, in this town with complete strangers as well. And that wasn't that bad either. I... I uh, I try not to be too agreeable, but I it's hard for me not to get along with people. So even if they have dumb ideas, I'm not super attached to it if, you know, you kill my awesome elf rogue. But, uh, you know, I'll see where it goes. And it's I don't know. It's kind of fun. I don't mind if my characters die. It's part of the story. Is that including your NPCs? Yeah, sometimes, sometimes I uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about my NPCs. But no, I I have a not a plan, but I I usually expect that they'll get murder hoboed or uh, just murdered either way. Do you have a recurring NPC? No, but the more I think about it, the more I I want to use a a, a previous character from three point five that is based on uh, Doctor Krieger from Archer and. Maybe that's just anything that I put out there, because I'm pretty close to him in some ways. Have you had the chance to play or DM systems other than Dungeons & Dragons? Uh, I'm, I've been collecting other systems. I haven't run any yet, and I really want to. Um, I have a few Powered by the Apocalypse games. I've got Dungeon World and uh, Fellowship, which is cool, because it's... It's kind of a Lord of the Rings uh, take on Dungeon World, take on uh, Apocalypse World, but uh, I'm not super huge into the books, or you know, I I like them. I'm just not knowledgeable. Um, but I like that you could, you know, as the Overlord or you know what have you, uh, you can have actual moves and be your own kind of big bad NPC, which is pretty much what I assume a lot of DMs kind of identify as, because you can finally torture your players the just the right amount that they deserve. And I also, I'm really looking forward to running uh, something called Spellbound Kingdoms, which has a few different mechanics that I think are really interesting and worthwhile. Where did you learn about the game? Learned about them all online, actually. I I do most of my, uh, like, I don't want to call it research, but most looking up games, you know, on the Penny Arcade forums and uh, on different RPG and RPG game design. Uh, that's redundant. Subreddits and uh, stuff like that. So I just kind of look around and see what other people are doing and see if it's interesting to me or not. Is there usually a deciding factor on what will get you to purchase a system? Mm, 
if it's something I don't already have or, you know, a mechanic that's new to me and it's something I can imagine actually running, I'll probably get it. Like Fragged Empire has a lot of really good stuff, but it's got a lot of crunch. So I'll read the books and I'll check it out, but it's not something I'm going to invest a lot of time in. Whereas Spellbound Kingdoms has some different things and some resolution and options that I like. So I'll probably try it out. When you are looking at a new system, if you planned on running a game, would you ask that the players also invest in the system? Or do you feel that it's the dungeon master or game master's responsibility to provide it for the players? Mm, I think it really depends on the situation. Uh, in, In the case of Spellbound Kingdoms, I mean, nobody else gives a crap. Everyone else is fine with playing 5th edition. Uh, so I want to try it out, but I don't really want to try it all alone. So I'll probably end up, you know, printing a few pages just for, you know, their character, how the character part works or how, you know, uh, basic resolution works. Uh, things like cheat sheets and stuff. I'll provide that. And if they're interested, you know, we'll we'll play it, but I'm not going to force it on anyone. But I, I'd hesitate to say that it's my job to, you know, get or do everything because you you have people that you know they they invest really heavily uh to dm for you know disinterested players and uh you know buy pizza and get snacks ready and then people don't even show up uh and that's you know that's not great that's that's hard to maintain that because you're going to burn out really quickly if you do that now i'm unfamiliar with the spellbound kingdom system is it a traditional d20 uh not exactly it has uh exploding dice which may turn some people off already but uh all that means is if you if you roll a d4 for a spell or defense or something and you get a four then you get to roll a d6 and if the d6 is higher you get that result um so it's it kind of uh feels like you know critting but works in a slightly different way and um for attributes you get a point or, you know, however many points in it. And that translates into, okay, I have a six of, you know, uh, I can't remember the stats, like, but it's six strength or something like that. Well, then for strength checks, you get to roll a D six. If it were seven, you'd still roll a D six. You know, it, it kind of works like that. I don't know if you round up or round down, but it's, it's a little more interesting. Um, and I'm just, I'm really used to 3.5 and D20 and 5th edition and stuff like that. So I see a lot of different, you know, clones or hacks of that. And I just wanted to try something different. What kind of tools does it give you as the GM in order to make your own world? Hmm. Uh, It comes baked in with its own setting, which is why the mechanics make sense for it. Like the setting actually has that uh, pre-made in, pre-baked into it. I'm not sure what creation rules it has. It it has, uh, you know, stats and uh, prices for different items, things like that. But I think I'd if I made my own setting with that in mind, then I would probably be making the setting independent of the rules themselves still. Do you prefer your own setting, or are you happy going with something that is pre-built for you? Um, I, I don't have anything, uh, completed as far as my own settings or stuff goes. 
there you know i've got something i've been working on for a little while and just adding random ideas into it but for the most part especially since i'm mostly focusing on one shots there's no campaigns or anything like that uh it's easier for me to just rely on their previous knowledge of different worlds or settings or uh you know elves are this way it's uh, orcs are like that and i could just use those assumptions and either challenge them or make them the background of the one shot itself are you currently listening to any actual play podcasts uh no actual play podcasts um i follow uh the adventure zone pretty religiously and i'm up to date with that and uh I'll uh, I'll listen to anything Matt Colville has to say, but he's not doing his uh, streaming anymore for good reasons. So, um, no, no, no actual play podcast yet. The Adventure Zone's an actual play. Well, y- yes, it is an actual play, but you know, in the beginning they were they were uh, you know forgetting some fifth edition rules. I think the distinction is that uh, Griffin is not as strict. And focuses more on the storytelling aspect of D&D and does an amazing job at it. So I don't mind that they're not, you know, describing, oh, I rolled, I rolled this and I have expertise. So I do that. You know, they they're focusing more on um, the story and how they are completing the story as opposed to, uh, you know, the roles They're They're role playing instead of role playing, you know. Shame on you. I couldn't help myself. And who are you to cast judgment on DMs forgetting rules? <laughs> yeah, I forget rules a lot. Uh, that's why. That's why when I run, I I like to use OneNote because then I can very easily shift the blame onto you know. So, oh, oh, let me look at my file real quick. Okay, yeah, it says this right here, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I forget rules. Have you had the opportunity to? dm any games online um well um related to uh the mcelroys i i started a group like a subgroup under a subgroup for uh still buffering to play some stuff on roll 20 and as you know i still haven't hosted a single one shot of anything in that group and i feel really bad for getting people excited to play fifth edition on roll 20 and then promptly did nothing about it um so someday I'm gonna to have to rectify that, but I I play in a mostly weekly, sometimes every other week. Uh, um, what is it? The Storm Giant, um, the fifth edition Storm Giant module that's very popular right now or very current. Uh, we're playing through that, and I've got a character in that that is just focusing on supporting, and I'm enjoying that. Has it been difficult going from? dm to player or vice versa no i i really love other people doing all the work um in in my personal life and in my work life it's great the only the only other thing that ever bugs me is like wait i know that rule's different and you know oh why are we why are they using flanking that's option well okay yeah i guess i guess i don't really care it benefits me this time um you know seeing other people do different things with dming and it it takes a little bit to realize, okay, just because it's different doesn't mean it's wrong. And even if it's not in the rules, if that's how they want to play it, that's not wrong either because this is all made up. So having to detach. Uh, I'm a very rules-minded person, even though I don't 
often read them. Um, so it, it feels weird when people go against them or make up their own stuff, even though the whole point is to be creative. Which role do you think has affected your other role greater? Uh, I think DMing definitely has uh, made me a better player. I, I I try to I play ball and I don't give my DMs a very hard time and I make sure that I can help the party out or if I can see that we're getting stuck on something I'll I'll try to offer different solutions or you know ensure the party survival as much as I can uh, just to get the story going and you know if we're stuck on one thing I'll try to nudge us in one direction or the other. In your gaming history. Do you have a favorite moment as a player? Favorite moment as a player. Probably my favorite moment is uh, a toss-up between... Well, okay, there it's a three-way tie. And it's all with my uh, Dr. Krieger character. He uh, It was 3.5, so we got crazy with the templates. And so uh, a buddy of mine is a druid saint. He has all these vows and different feats that make him just a walking, walking Pope druid person. And meanwhile, my guy is a necropolitan, which is basically a, an undead person, but not quite a lich, but he's also studying to be a lich through his classes. So I'm actively rotting and playing with this, uh, this wonderful saint. And, uh, (laughs) <laughs> and you have three different flavors. Yeah. Um, in that first flavor, I I was about to uh, split the party by following a, a greater wraith somewhere, which sounds like a bad idea and probably was, but it was for my, my story, for his story. So I touched the saint's wolf just to let him know something was up and was immediately crippled because any time undead touch all those different vowels and templates, they, you know, lose like... 1d6 or you know 1d8 or something like that dexterity so instead of actually following my own storyline i just laid there crippled on the floor the other time with that character is when i figured out the black sand spell which basically just makes evil sand that uh eats people and when it eats people it turns them into more sand so we were clearing out a cave of uh orcish women and children and pillaging and stuff like that they were half dragons they were probably evil i don't know uh, that's Krieger we're talking about. Um, and and I absolutely helped laid waste to that place. There was there were basically hurricanes funneling people to black sand where they melted into dust. It was it was pretty good. But of those three, my favorite is probably raising two wyverns into uh, zombies that I could fly. And, you know, it's not that I used them for much or story-wise it made sense or, um, you know, I ever used them in combat. But um, I'm not very good at min-maxing. And my my saint, Vow of Poverty, awful friend is. So raising two wyverns was the one time that I did something cool with that character. Um, And so I just cherished it. Like, oh, I have actual power now. Oh, this feels so good. And then it promptly went away. And we stopped playing that uh, campaign. How do you feel about min-maxers at your table? Uh, that's what I'm used to now. So I'm I'm used to uh, people wanting more combat 
and people min-maxing. So that's really, I don't want to say what I cater toward, but ba- it's basically what I cater towards. Um, in 5th edition, you don't have to really sacrifice a whole lot between role-playing and min-maxing uh, with the way that uh, proficiency works for skills and uh, backgrounds work. And you can make your own custom background anyway. So um, you can have a mechanically viable character and still role-play the same. And you can even use that min-maxing and you know making them pointy as it were, to, uh, you know, role-play that as well. It's like, hey, he's really good at combat or really good at this skill, but everywhere else he just gets confused and doesn't know how to proceed. And that could be part of the story. It doesn't have to be independent of it. Uh, I think too many people see min-maxing as, you know, somebody that doesn't want to role-play. It's like, well, I, I want to role-play. I just want him to be, you know, really good at one thing or another. How do you design your encounters around min-maxing? Uh, I definitely make them challenging and, uh, I, I try to set a few different areas where people could, uh, either move to or get attacked from. Uh, honestly, I don't really do much different. I just try to work that, uh, that monster or that group of monsters as mechanically sound as possible, you know, using, using kobolds that, you know, attack with advantage when they're next to each other. That can be deadly, but... Um, it's less so when you have, you know, more than six hit points. How about a favorite moment as the DM? Honestly, uh, anytime, uh, anytime I think about the, the deck of many things, I, I really enjoy that moment. But if either the team is working together really well and they solve something together and you can see the, the pleasure in their eyes when like, yes, we did this. We screw you, Dan, you piece of crap. Um, <laughs> that's kind of fun just to see their, their teamwork. But at the same time, when they're tearing each other down and bickering and it's, it's all fun. I, I some people have, you know, serious issues. They, uh, run into DMing or playing D and D with groups, but ours are all pretty hateful normally. So it's, it's okay. Um, those are all just fun for me to watch them, uh, you know, divide themselves so I can conquer them with NPCs, which sounds bad, and it probably is, but man, it's a lot of fun. Do you try to end every one shot with a deck of many things? Oh, God, no. No, that would take, that would add an hour to every one shot, and that's just the worst. They, um, anytime I DM, I usually have a pretty loose grasp of what I want to do, but not very firm, and it winds up going, you know, six hours instead of two. So, adding a deck to every one of those would be just the worst. And then if I really wanted to use it for something, they'd be tired of it. What's the longest gaming session that you have run? Maybe eight hours. Maybe. Um, when we were doing the lost Minds, we probably had, you know, six people and we're new and had lots of questions and we were at work and had uh, access to a, a good snack bar that we could, you know, we brought enough cash that we could keep ourselves going with booze and caffeine. And uh, those took a while, probably longer than they should have. I've gotten to the point now where I actually like uh, finding good stopping points or even baking them into whatever I'm doing just in case it goes long. I just hate the feeling of, you know, going somewhere at six at six o'clock. We start the game, but we're also mostly eating pizza. So it's just me eating pizza and then talking with my mouth full through like an introduction for an adventure. And then if by the time we're done, it's four in the morning, I don't really, 
I don't really want to spend much time with those people. Not because we it was a bad time, it's just so tiring. What do you do during the session to fight that kind of fatigue? Uh, I caffeinate pretty heavily. Um, but I, you know, I try to keep the players engaged because the more engaged they are, the more they're talking to each other, the less I either have to do or the less time I we have to spend uh, in one room. If they're all like, hey, what are we going to do here? Uh, is there anything? Roll? No. Okay, let's move on. Instead of, well, you know, I wanted to draw a picture here, or, you know, do something random, which can be fun. But at the same time, if you do something uh, fun and cute in every single room, you're quickly going to uh, lose any time management you ever had. Have you ever ended a game early because you were getting bored? No, no, I've hung in there. And, uh, yeah, the I've definitely had a few times where it was... It was getting to be work, and uh, I mean, it's, it's work the whole time. But it was, it was just a slog. I could tell that you know some people are getting bored, and I'm getting bored. But I don't always know what to do in that situation to you know break us out of it, other than say, "And there's a Tarask, fight it!" Oh, you're dead. You know, I, I haven't solved that issue yet. Did you ever end one when it looked like the players were getting bored? Hmm. I think uh, we got close one time, and I'm not sure if we've cut it short or not before. I can't really remember very clearly. That might have been one where I experimented and tried tried DMing drunk. I don't think it worked. Uh, But uh, no, no, I don't think I have ended it, so I just tortured us with that slog. But there was an end to an encounter, so we figured it out somehow and all went home. I've definitely had some issues and I've worked through them a little bit uh, and tried to learn from them, tried to avoid that. I've listened to a lot of uh, like uh, Drunkens and Dragons with Hank and Fernail talking about different ways to keep people moving or keep people uh, engaged. And so that has helped me out a little bit, but I still have a few lessons to figure out. You mentioned putting in some exit points. If you wanted to cut it off early, what do you mean by that? Honestly, usually just uh, rooms that, you know, are safe where you can do a short rest or something like that. And, you know, if you're at a point of dungeon where you're okay doing a short rest, then I'm not saying convert that to a long rest, but you can, you know, you can give the group a short rest there as well. One thing we've been trying to figure out better is, you know, adding in a few minutes, you know, every hour or so just to take a break and stretch your legs and, you know, uh, let people walk around and uh, decompress while I read on and uh, figure stuff out. So I'm definitely going to include that any, anywhere that the characters can do a short rest, the party can as well. What are your thoughts on the short rest versus long rest mechanic? Uh, I like the short rest mechanic. Um, I, I haven't run into any, negative issues with it honestly um sometimes people want to and this is the you know uh playing the game versus you know role playing the game uh like oh this is a good spot let's short rest like well no that wouldn't work and having to explain that you know this spot's not safe or you know i could just say you know hey yeah you could short rest there but you will get it interrupted by you know these other monsters that know you're in here i mean you're in a dungeon with hobgoblins looking for you. I don't think it's going to work out well. Um, 
but the mechanics themselves, I don't have any issue with. Uh, they make sense. I might, you know, depending on how hard a uh, an encounter or you know a dungeon or something like that is, I might let people use it more often than not. But that hasn't come up too much because they they're usually much more clever than I am. So they find ways to keep their hit points inside them. We're going to start wrapping up. But before we do, I'm going to ask you some questions from the Pivo questionnaire, pioneered by Bernal Pivo. <laughs> what is your favorite word? Bunk. What is your least favorite word? I think my least favorite word is probably just the sentence of, Hey, can you do this real quick? Or let me piggyback off that because you know, you're going to be somewhere much longer. If somebody says piggyback, yeah, I'm going to go with piggyback. That's my least favorite word. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Being creative. Um, the, <laughs> uh, I just thought of it. The, the scene that you can point to in, uh, Tron legacy where, uh, the dude is talking about, um, jazz in terms of, you know, creating, the 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 grid and stuff like that uh, i really enjoy that the getting creative and you know having ideas and bouncing them off other people i i really enjoy that and uh anytime i i feel able or willing to get creative with other people that that turns me on what turns you off uh limiting ideas i yeah limiting any ideas like if if i've got something that i want to try out and I'm not able to, and there's not a good reason, then I, you know, that's going to put me out a little bit. What is your favorite curse word to hear from your players? God damn it. When was the last time you made your players say, God damn it? Um, oh, probably, probably when that bear got mauled by the lion, because they really wanted to save that bear. <laughs> and they really did not. That poor bear. <laughs> what sound or noise do you love? Hmm. That's it. That's the sound. <laughs> or laughter. <laughs> Your own laughter? Yes, I'm very vain. You son of a bitch. I can't help it. I just love myself too much. What sound or noise do you hate? Uh, probably um, old alarms. I don't know. They always wake me up and I just... Ugh, the sound of them. It's terrible. Now when you say old alarms, are we talking the classic ringing clock? Oh, no. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, the, like... <laughs> uh, like early... Early 90s, beige, kind of flat. It's a digital clock, kind of. What game system would you like to attempt? DMing-wise, I, I want to do Spellbound Kingdom next. Um, Creation-wise, I don't know. I, I, I like any game that can combine uh, social and combat stuff in there, like Tale of Ice and Fire, role-playing game and stuff like that. Um, Anything that can 
combine those two things into one system I'm intrigued with. So I'd like to be able to do that, but not so complex or crunchy or uninteresting that it's not even worth the trouble. What game system would you not like to attempt? Probably anything 3.5 or Pathfinder or... I, I love the concept of it, I love the flavor, and I love the universe and the setting. But Fragged Empire just seems very intimidating to me, so I don't want to... I, I like it, but, you know, for someone else to do all the work, again. When your games conclude, what would you like to hear from your players? Um... I'd be okay if they said, God damn it. I, I would. Um, <laughs> no, I, you know, I just want to hear that they, they enjoyed themselves. They don't, there doesn't have to be a, a lesson that was learned or a specific objective other than staying alive. Even if, you know, the, the, the King they were trying to save died or the princess betrayed them or something like that. As long as they had fun, I'm happy with that. And lastly, if you could travel back in time to watch one person sneeze, who would it be? I would like to watch H.P. Lovecraft sneeze. Is there anything you want to shout out or Twitter? I uh, I just finished doing some consulting on uh, with uh, disgruntled decks for an Air Force version of their game, which is a. Uh, like cards of you against humanity, but Air Force, uh, and that was a lot of fun. And I think that'll be coming out in the fall. So shout out to that because the guy that made that and helped develop that and you know created the company is very funny. Um, so I'm pretty excited for that to actually exist in the world physically. Is there a website people can go to? It's just uh, disgruntleddecks.com and. Uh, People like up at the top, you can suggest a card, which is how I started working with them in the first place. So I, I just think this is such a cool between Kickstarter and um, like drive through RPG and stuff like that. I'm just really excited for uh, people being creative right now in any endeavor at all, because it just seems like all the tools are there. You can just do whatever you want. And if it's a good product, you know, people are going to play it or buy it. Thanks for joining us in the studio today. Thank you very much. You can follow this show on Twitter at ITMS underscore podcast. This show is part of the Audio Entropy Network. Head to audioentropy.com to find more shows, such as Going Pear-Shaped with Matt and Mike, War and Beast, a Beast Wars rewatch podcast, and coming soon, D-Comedy, Emma and Lucas make their way through the Disney Channel original movies. I'd also like to give a shout-out to friend of the network, Chelsea, for all the help she's been. I've been your host, Moon Rules, and remember, whether playing with brothers or brothers in arms, the DM always gets advantage on Rolls to Bust Chops. Mm-hmm.